Welcome, everyone, to Classics, a podcast from Kena Academy. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. In this episode of Classics, we explore the adventures of Huckleberry Finn and its author, Mark Twain. Joining me for the interview is Tom Wurge, Professor Emeritus of English at the University of Notre Dame. This episode is the first of two parts. On a personal note, Professor Wurge was one of the best teachers I've ever had. I studied with him twice while undergraduate at Notre Dame in the late 70s. Good morning, Dr. Wurge. Good morning, Andrew. Yeah, well, thanks for joining us today, and thank you also for receiving me and receiving Kane Academy into your home. Uh, it's very gracious of you, and it's just wonderful to see you again and have a chance to talk about some great texts. This morning, we're talking about Mark Twain's The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And Dr. Words, you're, uh, among other things, you're a Twain scholar. And I thought it would be helpful for our listeners if we could just start by talking about that title. You know, why did Mark Twain uh, choose that title? That's a, that's a really good question. And I think that um, in contrast to those who think that the title has something to do with the uh, uh, with the image of the huckleberry uh, as in, in connection with other uh, strawberries or other fruits and so forth, the uh, key to the the key to the word is really that a huckleberry in Twain's time refers to somebody who is a uh, a no account shiftless person, uh, not really worth listening to, somebody who is, uh, uh, now we would say probably marginalized, that's another, that's an overused word, but uh, somebody who is um, uh, dispossessed and really uh, not in the game. So there's a kind of inherent irony in the title to have a uh, narrator who is really a huckleberry would be, uh, in a sense, uh, oxymoronic at, at the time. So I think that's really the key. And, of course, the adventures Huck has are uh, both good on the one hand and uh, terrifying on the other. So adventures has a, um, a mixed uh, connotation there as, uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Now, does the name Finn um, represent something like um, uh, an historical acquaintance of Mark Twain, or was it a common name uh, where he was uh, growing up? Jimmy Finn was uh, was a boy, Twain knew, but the real prototype for Huck Finn was uh, a youngster named Tom Blankenship, who lived in a tremendously run-down house in Hannibal, uh, really just a uh, pile of lumber uh, with no real coherence. His father was an alcoholic, uh, and uh, so Tom is really the... Uh, important prototype there. The one uh, mothers warned their children against playing with, played hooky, kind of a, a scamp, but not a bad, not, not, a, not a bad youngster, really. So as with many of his characters, uh, Twain really draws them from his own experience, his own life. Mm-hmm. And what about Jim, the other major character in the novel? Would this have been the kind of uh, man that, that uh, Mark Twain would have known as a boy growing up? Uh, very much so. I think that he had a number of uh, friends who were uh, black friends, and both among children. And also, I think one of the really, at times, one of the overlooked aspects of Twain's uh, life is that uh, the major storyteller in his life was a black slave who was owned by Twain's uncle, uh, who lived in Florida, Missouri, not too far from Hannibal. And uh, Twain would go there in the summer. He thought he was in the midst of paradise to be at his uncle's farm. And uh, every weekend, at least, sometimes more, uh, Twain would uh, 
listened to this slave who was called Uncle Daniel, you know, in the manner of slaves being called uncle and aunt by the uh, by the families. Um, and Twain would talk about being absolutely enthralled by the stories he told. He has this great image in his autobiography of uh, white and black children sitting together in the hearth, listening to the stories of Uncle Daniel, not wanting to go to bed because the bed was cold, right? No central heating and so forth. Um, But the sound of his voice and the stories he told, which included, by the way, a good many of the Uncle Remus stories, Br'er Rabbit and Br'er Bear and Fox, um, uh, he was just utterly captivated. And when he describes those scenes, it's as if they're uh, he's really in a different world. So so it was really that, I mean, he loved his mother. His father was much more distant, and his father died when Twain was pretty young. Uh, so the real authoritative storyteller was uh, a slave. And I think that, in a, in a way, when we look at Twain's life now, placed him ahead of the curve compared to uh, a lot of others. Uh, Uncle Daniel was really the Authority, the storytelling authority, and I think that's a that's a really important aspect of his young life. So the role of Jim, the role of a a, 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 a black man or a black woman telling the story, being a principal a narrator in a story, this was relatively new, uniquely new in American literature. Well, it was it was unusual. Wow. I, I would put it that way. I guess uh, he. Uh, uh, Twain himself knew a number of slaves, and he uh, tells us in his autobiography that, of course, slavery was accepted by most people in the town, that ministers said that it was approved by God, and the, uh, it was part of the social mores. He had some incidents where he saw slaves um, uh, in a very, very bad condition, uh, indeed, and was moved by them. But the major story for me in his autobiography is the one where he speaks about his family. Uh, they they owned a few slaves. His father owned a few slaves. And uh, there was a little boy named Sandy who uh, was one of them. And Twain, when he was young, was probably about maybe the same age as Sandy, or Sandy was perhaps a little bit younger. And Twain said that Sandy would, would drive him crazy because he was constantly in motion and had to be singing and laughing and dancing and leaping around and bothering the young Twain. And so he went to his mother, Twain did, and said, could you please tell Sandy to uh, be quiet because he's driving me out out of my mind and I'm really bothered by him. And he said that his mother got very uh, trembly, and she said to him, "Um, uh, the poor child has just had his family sold uh, from out from under him. He will probably never see his mother or his father again. And he's in a very, very sad condition. And so when he's singing and dancing and leaping around and walking, that's fine with me because it shows he's trying to forget. She got more worried when he was quiet and reflective. And so Twain was so struck by that. He said it was a very um, short speech, but it was uh, very, very moving, and Sandy's noise never bothered me again. And so even though Sandy was very young, he's he in part is really the prototype for Jim and for the older black characters in, in Twain's work. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Just on a practical level, when a teacher is going to lead a group of students in the study of, of Huck Finn, um, there are a few things that the, the teacher will need to, to say to the students just to kind of orient them in terms of genre, 
uh, in terms of looking for certain details. We don't want to over-contextualize a book with, uh, with the history or with the, uh, the, the social uh, context that the book was written in. On the other hand, what do you think are some sort of core, basic, introductory elements that a teacher ought to be responsible for as, as, the, as the students are being led at the initial stage? Yeah, a great question, Andrew. I, I would say at the very outset, the first uh, message Twain gives to us uh, in the book is that the setting is 40 or 50 years before uh, now. That is, he's writing it in 1884, roughly. And so the setting is really uh, roughly something like um, uh, the mid-1840s or 1830s. So it's before the Civil War. The Civil War has not yet occurred. And the language Huck would be using would be absolutely typical of a young, poor white kid uh, in a small town like Hannibal. And mainly, of course, the use of uh, the word nigger, which is so incendiary. And, um, but if Twain wants to use a narrator like Huck, that's the word he would use. There's no day he is not going to use the word Negro, certainly not going to use the word African-American, which comes much, much later. Um, and no question that it's a horrific word. Uh, Emerson says in his journal that the, uh, uh, that the word nigger undercuts all the good work of all the anti-slavery societies in the world. So there's no, it's not a word Twain ever used um, himself. And so uh, I think that um, in order to be realistic, there's no way you can get around uh, that word. Uh, you can't. But clearly Twain is writing uh, a book that is uh, uh, anti-slavery, that is pro Justice and equality, uh, and but it's very, very important to realize that this is uh, long before the Civil War uh, even uh, even begins. And in fact, I think one of the real uh, wonders of the book uh, is the ending, which I think is a wonderful ending. A lot of critics hate the ending; they find it very, very tedious. But I think what's happening at the end is that you have um, an absolute contrast between. Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. Tom Sawyer is reenacting, recapitulating slavery at the end of the book uh, in two ways. He's afflicting Jim without any real uh, sensitivity to his condition. So he's making Jim into an object of ridicule and continually uh, inflicting these uh, cruelties on him, but he's also dressing it up in um, uh, in romantic language. Louis the Fourteenth, here lies so and so, and that for Twain is really the essence of slavery. It's the perpetuation of cruelty uh, sandwiched in a romantic vision, which is totally absurd and 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 totally. Uh, Grotesque, And so in this very short, it's really not that long an ending, uh, but it's one where um, you have the, the presence of slavery being reenacted. And the difference between Tom and Huck, of course, is that Tom loves all this. He wants us to go on forever. Huck doesn't know why it's going on, basically, and he goes along with it. Uh, but only reluctantly, you know, his typical his typical um, response is, so I'd done it. You know, Tom asked me to do this. I don't know why we're doing this to Jim, uh, but uh, I went ahead and so I'd done it. And so it's a wonderful ending in that sense. And uh, one of the great uh, throwaway lines, or it seems like a throw a throwaway line, 
Uh, but uh, an utterance that certainly anticipates the coming of the war is that um, Tom, remember, is shot. He gets wounded uh, at the end, and the doctor is called, and uh, the doctor uh, says to Huck, what happened to, to your friend? And Huck says, um, he had a dream, and it shot him. And the doctor says, a singular dream, you know, that it, that it could do that. But I think that's really the anticipation of, uh, of the war to come, that the, um, uh, one of the reasons Twain was so hostile to Sir Walter Scott, because he loved Scott's works, uh, Ivanhoe and so forth, and all of his you know, historical romances, uh, but Twain felt that the South had really bought into Scott's vision of things and that they uh, had used that to somehow disguise the evils of slavery and to dress it up in this utterly romantic uh, uh, guise. And after the war, it was even worse because, of course, then the war became the lost cause and the romance of the South uh, began to uh, to be extrapolated from you know what had happened uh, in in the war, and so I think that that's one of the uh, master strokes of the novel. It's a great. I'm not sure what other ending you really could have. You're not going to probably follow Jim and the boys and and any further adventures uh, in the novel. So I think it's a it's a very trenchant and powerful ending. Where, where lay that? Um romantic uh, image of slavery or the relationship between whites and blacks in the South? Or what did it look like? Can you flesh that out for us? Yeah, well, I think that uh, you know, to some degree you see it. I mean, it's a little bit unfair because uh, Selznick was doing something totally different, but uh, the kind of gone with the wind vision, you know, what, what were, I mean, it's true that Hattie McDaniel was a wonderful actress and, and so forth, uh, And but on the whole, uh, there's not a whole lot about slavery in Gone with the Wind. It's basically kind of a romantic. Um, uh, I mean, you got Clark Gable, of course, and uh, and Vivian Lee, uh, but it it happened very very quickly in a sense. I think it was the need to somehow justify slavery, and rather than justifying it, not that it can be justified, but rather than justifying it by saying that. Slavery is universal and ancient. The Greeks had slaves. The Romans had slaves. The African uh, African tribes enslaved each other. The Arabs were very well-known slave traders. Slavery has always been around, always, since the beginning of time. Still is. Still is, it's absolutely. On, it's on the rise in uh, the Middle East. It is, absolutely. And as a matter of fact, it's a, it's a huge problem in uh, China, where children are being stolen away from their families and sold into slavery. Um, and so it's a, it's a constant of the human condition. Uh, but if, because I think of um, the South's, uh, in part their guilt, and not just the South, but there, obviously there were Northerners who supported slavery as well, uh, it became necessary to, um, as they saw it, uh, to dress everything up in this kind of romantic language, which really... Um, disguised uh, uh, horrifically the actuality of, of slavery. And in Life on the Mississippi, Twain has a long um, harangue against poor Sir Walter Scott. I mean, he, you know, he, Twain said you could almost say that Scott was responsible for the Civil War. Now, I mean, that's a pretty you know, heavy charge to levy at anyone. Um, but what he meant was that uh, the reading of Scott gave them a kind of... Um, Excuse to uh, uh, to to dress up and elaborate on 
uh, the horrors of slavery while over- overlooking the horrors in order to uh, perpetuate this image which Twain felt was utterly um, misguided and utterly misleading. Even though, again, he, he, he loved reading Scott, so the, it's another one of the many paradoxes of, of, of Twain. But he did feel that it did a lot of damage because it really hid the true evils of slavery from everyone. And then, as I said, once the war was over, uh, then it was the lost cause that um, uh, that the South was sort of um, pining for and, in a sense, um, uh, continu- continuing to justify, you know, their, uh, their secession. Mm-hmm. So if Tom Sawyer's in the spot that he's in at the end of the novel... Huck Finn's in a different place. I mean, he's still a friend, of course, to Tom. And, you know, right. as you said, he says, you know, he, he did it, right? So, uh, right. And, and tormenting uh, Jim. But what? But if you look at the kind of the development of Huck over the course of the novel, where is he at the beginning and, and where is he at the end? How did he get there? Well, I think that that's one of the great uh, aspects of the novel, really, is that, uh, again, a number of critics have said that uh, that Huck remains very static, but I don't, I don't think he does. He really does change. And um, remember, at one point, he's sort of stunned to realize that Jim loves his family. And he says, it's, I sort of can't believe that, that he loves his family as much as white folks do, but it's definitely true. So you, what you get is, is a gradual series of revelations that make, that make him, uh, makes him think about Jim in a different way when they're when they're alone on the raft and they're naked and they're in this beautiful setting which is almost prelapsarian it's as if the garden of eden has really come back and the equality is absolute remember they wonder about how the stars are formed and Jim says well maybe you know the moon could have laid laid the stars and uh, so Cox says well you know i've seen a frog lay most as many so that could be. I mean, he takes pretty Jim, good account. Yeah. Yes, pretty, yes. He he takes that to be a um, uh, a very plausible uh, explanation. And so uh, the raft becomes a kind of home for them, right? Huck really has no home. His father wants to kill him and drives him out of Hannibal. Uh, the widow Douglas, uh, he chafes under her love, although she's a very good woman. One of the fascinating things about the, the widow Douglas is that you have to realize that Huck's um, vision of his imprisonment, as it were, at the beginning is utterly exaggerated, and of course, right, and uh, utterly excessive, uh, because the widow wants to give him a home, and she does, she does the best she can. Yeah. And uh, even though uh, she and Miss Watson are not, you know, Huck's cup of tea, as it were, uh, they're good people, and, and they want to provide for him. They know that his father... Uh, is uh, satanic and alcoholic and probably will never re- I mean, never uh, reform. And um, so I think that you have there, on the other hand, that's not what Huck sees as a true home. And so the raft becomes his home, right? And Jim becomes a kind of mother and father to him. And, um, and But the problem is that the raft is not a permanent structure. You, know, you have to tie up, you know, on the banks of the river, and then you're right back in the midst of slavery uh, again, and it's something that uh, that Huck really can't uh, escape. Um, and even when he re- recognizes that the Duke and the King are totally fraudulent, remember, he says, well, I, 
I didn't say anything because uh, Pap always said it's important to keep peace in the family. Now, that's ironic because Pap is not the most peaceful uh, fellow around. But I think that Huck is always searching for a home. And uh, this idea that Americans are purely nomadic and that they have no sense of roots at all is very, very misguided, I think very, very misleading. And one of the characters I, tr- I try to take a look at and spend some time with is uh, Mary Jane, uh, the mm-hmm. character, right? Uh, Huck comes to her defense. Uh, he's really a good person. He, wa- he wants to save her as, uh, from the uh, cruelty of the Duke and the King and the lies and the fraudulence. Um, and he really likes her. I, I'm not sure that he was he's in love with her, but he certainly is... Um, Impressed, And he uses what was a very great uh, compliment in the 19th century, that she was full of sand. He says she had, she had more sand than any girl I ever met. And sand was uh, a kind of image that suggested um, moxie, intestinal fortitude, guts, uh, you know, kind of uh, feistiness. Uh, and... And Twain loves that in her. And, uh, so what we would say, grit? Yes, true grit would yeah. be exactly, yeah. absolutely. True grit would be exactly an exact synonym. Uh, and, of course, he can't believe that she would pray for him. She said, you know, I'll pray for you. You know, pray for me. I mean, good luck. He feels that he's totally beyond, beyond redemption. Uh, but, um, but he has great feeling for her. And one of the last times we see him referred to was so poignant because it's when Huck is in the midst of the storm and he's kind of, you know, moving around, he's trying to, uh, uh, trying to stay on a path, basically, and he's heading out and um, he looks back and he says, uh, and I saw our house, he says, our, not, not Mary Jane's, but our house. Uh, and he says, and then right as I looked at it, a light came on in the window. And he said, I just filled my heart seeing that light. But then the light was out again. And he said, and I, I knew I would really never see Mary Jane again in my whole life. There's sort of no going back, right? Huck's got to be on the move, like Jack Kerouac or whoever. He's got to be on the river. Uh, but there's a kind of poignancy in that connection between them that I think is really, really important. It shows a certain longing for home and longing for stability. And I think we do Huck and Twain a disservice when we think that um, everything about Huck's travels are highly romantic and he doesn't really need anyone else and he's rejecting society. That's a really one-sided view. First time we see him, um, uh, he's lonely. Remember, he hears the wolf howling and wishes Tom Sawyer were there. He, He feels alone. And uh, it's really important, I think, to uh, accentuate that because I think it's the way Twain was. He loved to wander, but he loved his family. He loved his children. He was crushed when three of the four died and his wife died before he did. And uh, you can't underestimate, I think, the, uh, the power of that vision of home. It's very, very important for Americans yeah. and for Twain. So, so that seems very real in Huck Finn, very, very human that he would... He would relish the the travels on the river with his friend Jim, right. and at the same time, there's just an, an abiding desire for for a place, for a home, for family, yes. for the kinds of things that kind of fill out what it means to be human. Absolutely. And he knows he doesn't have them, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, and we see that mirror in very dramatic form when his 
uh, house comes floating by, remember? And Jim oh, yeah. uh, goes in and sees that Pap is dead. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't want to tell Huck that because I, for two reasons. One is that it would be a real shock, but the other is that I think Jim is afraid that Huck would leave him. You know, his father's dead now, so he could go back to, to Hannibal. So Jim Jim is very smart. Uh, he, yeah. he, he thinks about it and decides it might, and this is not the best time to to tell him. But yeah, I think he has a, uh, a vision of home that's very powerful, certainly when he thinks about um, when he thinks about uh, his own childhood and he, he thinks about uh, his mother, who was the prototype for Aunt Polly, you know, he had great love for his mother. And his mother is the one who alerts him to the horrors of slavery with uh, you know, Sandy, the little, the little slave boy. Um, even with the um, uh, with the corrosiveness of slavery, uh, Twain loved his home. He loved loved being a uh, a child. So even though we see him as uh, you know, right away in his youth in California and going out, you know, with his brother to uh, uh, to the, to 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 the west to California. Um, uh, for all of the uh, traveling uh, in Twain, well, he's one of the first writers ever to go to India. Yeah. You know, he got to India, and that that's amazing because even Walt Whitman and wrote a lot of it. And he never went there, though. Um, so he is uh, a wanderer, and yet at the same time. Um, that longing for home never really uh, leaves him either. Thanks, everyone, for listening to part one of this episode of Classics. I hope you're enjoying the interview with Tom Wurge and will join us for part two as we continue our discussion of the adventures of Huckleberry Finn. I'm Andrew Zwerneman. For everyone at Kane Academy, we look forward to meeting you again on Classics. <laughs>